Oh, my story. <laughs> Now, this is definitely a true story, right? And I can't name the individual involved, but there was a, a friend of mine, uh, a woman uh, f that lived in Torino. And um, she was learning to drive and she was having to do, uh, prepared for a test, right? So in Italy, You can't go for a driving test unless you have done X amount of lessons in advance. Now, I think this, uh, they brought that in in Ireland now as well, have they? Yes, they have, yeah. indeed. Yeah. Well, anyway, it was, it was in, it's, in, it's been yeah, in Italy. 12 hours, I think. Yeah. For 12, is it, well, I, I could even be more in Italy, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's been in Italy for years and years, right? So anyway, my friend, anyway, done all her lessons, right? And um, so she went for her test, right? Now, in Italy, whoever has kind of been teaching you goes along on the day of the test as well and introduces you to the tester right so anyway off she went to do her test uh, in the car with the tester and my friend now in fairness at the time it could probably be fairly said that she wasn't a great driver now a bit by a bit Behind the reckless side, you know. So anyway. Bit of a Barry Cowan or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, she wasn't fond of U-turns. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, she's done, she done the test, right? So the, she drives back to the, to the starting point where her uh, instructor uh, was, was waiting for, to see how she got on, right? So she drives in and stops the car and she says to the tester, Did I pass? Did I pass? And he says, did you pass? He says, not only did you not pass, he says, but under no circumstances am I ever getting into a car with you again. Bringing <laughs> back and memories for so, me. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, she was shocked, right? She's just, oh, I can't believe this, I can't believe this. And she started crying, right? Anyway, your man wasn't for moving, right? So, my, my, my friend gets out of the car and she goes over to the, the, uh, to her, her instructor, right? And she says, you won't believe this. You won't believe this. He's not passing me. He's not passing me. What can we do? What can we do? And uh, my friend pleaded and pleaded with, with her instructor. Oh, can you do something? Please, please, can you do something? I can't face doing it again. I've, I've tried so hard. I really have. And I've prepared so well. And it's not fair that he's not passing me. So, okay, okay. So calm down, calm down, calm down. The instructor says... I'll have a chat with him, right? So <laughs> the instructor goes over and talks to the tester. And and after they talk and they talk and they talk. And after 15 minutes, the tester walks over to and says, Congratulations, you passed. <laughs> <laughs> and the moral of the story well, is? And the moral of the story is, well, listen... My friend is still driving. I would say my friend has improved uh, over time. Bit of experience that helps, you know. Because he's uh, a funny type. No, no. She's managed to survive. So Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. Madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun on three occasions. I done well to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules 
to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the net to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? They don't need us to kick them around the place. You could say, so what? It's police in riot gear with Trump. I am ashamed to call myself a the European. recognition of Guaido, an elected gobshite, is an absolute embarrassment. Now, you did use the word gobshite, so uh, I would re- reprimand you over them. Hello, and welcome back to I Foresee Trouble with Dalian Wallace. This is our 20th episode, so if you've been listening this far, you're an absolute champ. Thanks very much. Um, thanks for tuning in. Uh, we're getting some great feedback, and we're constantly looking for um, improvements and other topics to talk about, so do get in touch. We're always happy to hear from you, and this is our last podcast for the summer break. Were you impressed uh, with the manner in which our new Taoiseach well, ha- handled his first crisis? I, I, I think I'm a believer in, in your theory on the matter that Leo Varadkar is more intelligent than we thought and he's probably sitting laughing his head off, kind of waiting for Fianna Fáil to eat itself up. Um, no, I thought Michal Martin handled the very count thing really poorly. Um, just flip-flopping like that from lunchtime to the early evening shows a total lack of decisiveness in that. I'm not really sure what's going on. It strikes me there's a bit more, might be a bit more to this whole story than meets the eye. I'm not fully sure uh, what's going on. Um, but no, it certainly was a very poor reflection on Michal Martin. And he's probably delighted that uh, the other party leader, Eamon Ryan, was caught asleep the next night to take the uh, attention off. But you look at the carry-on of them all and really, it's pathetic. pathetic. Yeah, I mean, I, I um, look at it, initially I was surprised that that Leo Varadkar did not go for another election because he was going to dramatically increase the number of seats the Fine Gael were holding and Fianna Fáil were going to suffer badly. Um, he, there was no doubt but um, Fine Gael and uh, the caretaker government uh, were making ground through the COVID crisis. Uh, but anyway, they decided to do the coalition and it does look like um, Fine Gael uh, are probably happy enough to watch uh, Fianna Fáil <laughs> make a show of themselves. Mm. Um, listen, uh, we've said it before, but the, 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 part, the Fianna Fáil party is not in a good place. And uh, more than likely, um, the main right-wing party in Irish politics from mm. here on will be Fine Gael uh, and Fianna Fáil are likely to get squeezed. Uh, but it was an opportunity for Michal Martin to lay down a marker. Uh, he was the new boss and uh, he was going to be strong and show leadership. And, and instead, uh, it was a damn squib. Not very handling that well. It's only 17 days Kevin is in the ministerial no, he, role. He, so. he showed no strength yeah. of leadership. And that's a problem. Mm. He's actually wounded. The worst of he's, all he's already yeah. He's hardly started mm. and he's already wounded. Yeah. Right? Uh, it's mad how it works, right? But all these little things uh, leave dents in leaders. right? And uh, he's, he's on the back foot already. Mm. Big time. And a lot of discontent, I'd imagine, in Fianna Fáil and that as well. You know? Yeah, um, the the Cowan dynasty um, is no light matter. Um, they'd be pretty powerful uh, in Fianna Fáil circles. Uh, have a lot of support, a lot of back, backing, I'd say. And uh, I think many of them will have the knives out for Michal Martin. 
Yeah. So let's talk about what's been happening now. This is our last week in the European Parliament before it shuts down for a few weeks over the summer. Um, so there's been a few things happening. Uh, we're going to talk about security and defense, about PESCO, the European Defense Agency, about anti-money laundering, about CAP. Let's. Um, what would you like to talk about first? Tell me about your week. No, go ahead, gentlemen first. Oh, dirt before the broom. <laughs> That's it, yeah. Um, well, I'll tell you what, early in the week, on Monday, um, the, uh, there was an Irish woman who came before the Environment Committee, uh, Emer Cook, and she's looking for the job as uh, the new head of the Medicines European Agency. Medicines Agency. It's a big job. Yeah. Now, uh, Emer has been with... Um, WHO, the World Health Organization, for the last four years, and uh, she was big up in it. I mean, she was one of the, um, I'd say, you know, one of the uh, vice chairs or whatever they call them. Uh, but she was um, had a strong position in it. So anyway, she was looking for this job, and she had to make a presentation before the um, Environment Committee, and we got a chance to ask her questions. And I mean, I asked her a few questions. <laughs> Uh, hi, Emer. Gunari uh, Lat. I hope I won't be accused of Irish bias. Um, Evidence-based medicine uh, has become synonymous uh, with randomised controlled trials. Now, RCT's uh, investigators focus almost entirely on the primary endpoint, does the drug work, with minimal space and time to record adverse events. They are unlikely to record a problem, in particular one that can be passed off as a feature of the illness. A classic example of this is SSRI, antidepressants, and sexual dysfunction. Some studies have shown rates of, of uh, during SSRI use at 50%, and there's a growing body of research showing that the damage can be permanent. These kinds of adverse effects can lead uh, in, to the very depression that the drugs were supposed to address in the first place. Do you agree that adverse effects in RCTs are overlooked? And if so, is there any action that you would take on this issue in your new role? Uh, my second point, uh, some new medicines are extremely important and have significant positive health outcomes. However, many medicines have little health or therapeutic benefits. The French medical journal uh, Prescrire, in its annual review of drugs to avoid that are authorised by the European Medicines Agency, lists 105 drugs that are more dangerous than beneficial. Basically, they, they identify a lack of emphasis on what is going wrong with drugs. I just wonder how you would plan to address that issue. Thanks. Um, I mean, one of, the, uh, one of the questions that I put to her uh, was that uh, a recent report by a medical journal in France called Prescrire uh, highlighted the fact that uh, there was 105 drugs um, that were authorised by the, the same EMA uh, but had been found to be more dangerous than beneficial to people's health. And I asked her if she was the boss, what would she do about it? Now, she dodged it a bit and that she hadn't seen the report. Uh, but, I mean, that would be part of our remit. Uh, if And she's most likely to get the job, right? Now, I mean, I don't know how good she she's she's going to be. Uh, that remains to be seen. But uh, we have to give her the benefit of the doubt mm. uh, and see how she gets on. Uh, but also, um, I challenge her as well on the fact that the production of medicines today is 
dominated by the private pharma industry and um, they hold us to ransom as they see fit and there's no sense in the amount of money that they can charge for their products there's a big problem obviously with patents uh, but yet at the same time an awful lot of the research that they do they, people say oh if you don't allow them to have patents they won't do the research and come up with the new medicines but in actual fact if you look under the covers you'll find that the state the public sector actually pays for an awful lot of the research anyway but I mean big farmers are licensed to print money they're very powerful very hard to put manners on them and I, I asked her if she not, did she, if she not thought did she think that uh, given the body she's working for, would be working for now, is actually an EU body? Uh, do you not think that it's about time that the EU actually encouraged and pressured member states to invest more in the public sector in, in, the re- in relation to all aspects of health and medicine? And I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that we obliterate the private sector but let's stop being so dependent on them because we've actually we've done so much privatization. And one of the reasons that Ireland was so vulnerable for COVID is because of privatization, is because we've watered down our public health service so much in the last 15 years. Mm. And uh, we were very vulnerable and uh, we ended up uh, losing so, over 60% of the people that died in Ireland died in residential care because our uh, health system wouldn't have been able to cope if they had been allowed to move to the hospitals for care. It was just uh, uh, a real example of the fact that um, there's not enough public uh, investment in the, in the health service anymore. There, in fact, there's, there's quite a lot of public investment to research and development. The scary thing about it is there's no ownership then of the results. So when we're talking about medicines, research especially now with the whole thing about a covid vaccine there's very little guarantee or any kind of assurance that this will be something in the public ownership and publicly available and freely available and accessible instead we see the opposite we see this kind of fencing of of the the rights the intellectual property rights to whatever is going to be developed which means the accessibility will be higher barriers and everything so i think this is a really appropriate question anyway to ask with the ema so this is a, a body of the EU, as you said, an agency and the Environment Committee, it's the Environment and Public Health Committee, of course, that's why we have this remit, gets to authorize this candidate. So it was a good question to throw to her. And I don't think it was very, she was not very challenging of Big Pharma. I think that's definitely the big thing we got from it. But overall, uh, I think she's approved now by the committee. So yeah, look, at and, and if, if, she, if she doesn't, um, if she doesn't hold Big Pharma to account, and uh, serve the EU citizens well, now that she's working for the, a top EU body in this area, then uh, it's part of our responsibility to hold her account and challenge her on that as she progresses. Yeah. I mean, you, you saw there about uh, six or eight weeks ago, uh, Trump contacted a French pharmaceutical company that's highly sponsored by the French state and by the EU over the years, and even I've got money uh, to look for the vaccine now. But in actual fact, the, the Americans gave them more money than anyone else in the last six months. So they, the company actually came out, this French company, and said that in the case of them finding a vaccine, they'll be obliged to give it to the Americans first because they gave us the most money. 
Mm. And this is a this is a company that's uh, getting Some loads stars. of money uh, from the European taxpayers. Yeah. It's crazy. That's and the problem so, with this private research in the end, because yeah, it's not anyway, going to lead to public outcomes. Let's see how she gets on. Yeah. Uh, so that's Emer Cook with the European Medicines Agency. Uh, sorry, there's something else I wanted to say. About. Oh, yeah. Um, the good thing, though, is the European Medicines Agency is one of these ones that's being moved post-Brexit because it was situated in London. Um, post-Brexit, it's being moved to Amsterdam. There's been a big rush of trying to build up everything and move all the staff and everything like this. So the funny thing is, at least they, the Brits lose an agency and then an Irish woman takes over in charge in Amsterdam. So <laughs> that's yeah, how it works. And I mean, from our point of view, and uh, and I said it uh, at the NB committee, um, you know, we're glad that an Irish person is getting it. And obviously now, uh, we certainly, uh, hope that she does a good job. And, uh, we, but while we're glad that an Irish person gets it and we were supportive of her, uh, but we'll hold, we'll hold her to account, uh, irrespective of where she comes from. Yeah. And she's well qualified for the job. So good luck to her. Uh, tell us about the SEDE committee. So that's security and defence. There's uh, some stuff happening this week on that. Well, we had before us, we had the European Defence Agency, newly appointed head, um, came in before us yesterday. Um, wasn't hugely impressive. I think you were the one really challenging him, Mick. Yeah, well, OK, well, uh, this guy is new to the scene. He's part of the furniture. Uh, he's been involved with NATO for 10 years. He's uh, he's much like you'd expect him to be, very much in the American camp, very much targeting China and Russia. Has spent his first few weeks in the job arguing about the amount of money that's going to go into defence uh, in the next couple of years because there's talks of cutting defence spend due to the heavy cost of COVID. And of course, there's a huge fight back against any possible cuts in defence. Uh, these guys make the argument that uh, that COVID has taught us that we need to spend more on defence, not less, uh, which obviously is, is a pretty irrational uh, position to take. But look, at, it was it was my first opportunity to meet him, and I just had a general go at him about the fact that targeting China and Russia is a foolish policy now. Uh, I would say that... Uh, my, my criticisms are not personal either, even though they'll be different from his. Um, I, I believe that targeting China and Russia is not a good policy and could, if we're not careful, become a self-fulfilling one. Uh, Russia and China, I don't believe, have uh, expansionist policy in terms of the EU. Russia is not an, ex- an existential threat. China is more than anything our most promising trade partner and, in reality, our strongest ally in building a peaceful future. And I think within our lifetime, they're more than likely to be the number one superpower. We're currently witnessing uh, the end of American hegemony and influence in the world, and the sanctions and disinformation campaigns that they are engaged in, often with EU collusion, unfortunately, are just a symptom of the shifting geopolitical power structures. If we continue to follow the brain-dead Cold War stupidity of NATO, stoking up old conflicts and racist narratives, we will be doing even more to move the rest of the world into an alliance that operates successfully and wholly independent of Western influence. I've heard much talk about cyber attacks and new waves of disinformation campaigns in recent months. Not a whole lot of hard evidence available. We need to grow up, stop fabricating false narratives in order to serve the interests of the arms industry. Do you not think it's time to work towards a policy for peace instead of one of escalation, uh, 
for the life of me, uh, I honestly believe that it is in the interest of the people of Europe that we actually engage with people. We should, it makes sense to sit down and uh, discuss everything and with your, uh, your foes, whatever. Uh, the conflict in Northern Ireland was a wonderful example of it. We'd still have the provost uh, running right if the British uh, government hadn't sat down with him and done business with him. Thank you. At the moment, you could not make a rational argument to say that China or Russia have expansionist policy in terms of the EU. It's just not sensible, right? It's not true, right? Russia is not an existential threat, as some of them uh, pretend that it is. And uh, China will be the world's economic superpower in our lifetime. And it is in Europe's interest to have good relationships with China. And instead of fighting with them and making them into a boogeyman, uh, we need to be working with them uh, so that and have, having positive, rela- positive relationships with them. Now, uh, obviously, this guy is from a NATO background and continuing on with this absolute nonsense of... It, it's, it's an extension of the Cold War nonsense that, that, that went on for so many years. And the excuse for spending... I mean, I've said it before, right, but member states last year spent over 200 billion euros in Europe, member, European member states. And now we have money coming out of the primary budget as well, going towards defence. And these guys, they use Russia and China as an excuse for, oh, why mm. we must prepare. We have to be ready for them. Anything could happen. It's their justification yeah. of, the, of the funding. So yeah, it is nonsense, but it's necessary nonsense for them. Because if they don't have that, yeah. you know, the barbarians are at the gate, well, then why are we spending all this money on arms? Well, an actual fight, when, when the uh, shortly, uh, a few years after the so-called Cold War ending with the collapse of the Soviet Union, and Russia was, was literally pauperized at that time, uh, the, the Americans were looking for a new enemy. And that's when they started their great war on terrorism. Mm. And they literally invented a, a new target in order to justify defence spending. You you could be forgiven for thinking that the lobbyists that promote the arms industry are running Europe at the moment. Well, I mean, not only could you be forgiven for thinking it, the facts were revealed that that is so. And when I asked him that question, he didn't bother even answering it at all. Like, I mean, we had when the European um, Defence Fund was set up, thanks to the input of a board which was dominated by the arms industry and Emily O'Reilly, in fairness to her, another Irish woman at the helm of a European organisation, but in fairness, she did a really uh, insightful report condemning them for the lack of, of transparency and the conflict of interest, really, when I put it to him about this conflict that the arms manufacturers are sitting on a body that dictates what type of research is needed for Europe then they decide, yeah, we do need that research and we need to put billions in that. Uh, so we set up this fund for that. And then the same com- companies are the beneficiaries of uh, that fund. But the European Defence Agency was at the heart of that. And based on his answers yesterday, he's done nothing uh, to address that conflict. I mean, they talk about their job being to advance the interests of the uh 
stakeholders. I mean, who's the stakeholder in defence? The people who are going to get shot at the end of the gun? And no, because they don't know. So it's obviously the industry. So they're lobbyists really for uh, the industry. And he didn't answer any of those questions. And he particularly didn't answer the questions either about the whole area of arti- artificial intelligence in and lethal autonomous weapons and so on, which the parliament is opposed to. Uh, but are they investigating it? Are they innovating in this way? Yes, probably. It's the new big uh, danger because there's loads of cash to be made from it. Let's have a listen to your intervention in the Security and Defence Committee. Obvious from our amendments that uh, we don't agree in any way, shape or form uh, with the report. And actually our shadow will be tabling a minority report as well. And I suppose for us it's hard to know where to start because our disagreements are so fundamental. I mean, the rapporteur laments the slow progress of PESCO and complains about participating member states not paying enough attention to the 20 binding commitments to which they've subscribed. Now, from our point of view, we're absolutely delighted at that. We'd love if they went even slower or if they scrapped the whole thing entirely because for us, EU militarism is actually... Uh, progressing at a very dizzying speed. I think we've seen that in here in the last few weeks in the contributions from the German and French defence ministers and from the EDA today, uh, even trying to convince us that the current COVID crisis means we need to spend more money on defence, a point which is also uh, raised in the report before us today. Now, for us, simple maths tells us that militarism reduces the resources available for other public investments like health and social security, and you don't fight a virus with tanks and missiles. When you add that fact to the fact that research shows that in the past 35 years, 77% of violent conflicts were ended through peace agreements and only 16% through militarism, Uh, it isn't hard to see that investing in peace should actually be a way forward. So for us, PESCO is little more than um, a sop to the arms industry, part of a wider European superstructure established to channel billions of public money to the likes of Thales, Airbus, Rheinmetall, uh, Leonardo and all the rest of it. Uh, And we don't want any part of it, to be honest, and we think it will lead the EU further into a spiral of insecurity, particularly with regard to Russia, a point articulated by the German Defence Minister while she tried to convince us that we all needed to buy in to the common threat of Russia. Well, I can tell you, Russia isn't a threat to Ireland, and trying to convince us that it is, I don't know how she's going to square that circle, but pretending that there's threats on your border, increase in militarism to respond enriches one uh, group of people only, and that is the uh, arms industry. We also make the point that militarism gets in the way of addressing the structural causes of insecurity and risk, key issues like climate change, global inequality and so on, and actually produces new insecurities and deepens existing ones. So for us, PESCO will make Europe less safe and actually will make the world less safe because Europe flooding the globe with more weapons isn't really a a recipe for a safer world, uh, which PESCO allows us to do. So we'd much prefer to see the resources which are being channeled into PESCO uh, and the billions earmarked for the EDF to tackle use instead to tackle the root causes and peaceful prevention and resolution of conflicts and that would do an awful lot more to protect European citizens and deliver peace in the world than PESCO will.
All I'd say about that is it's gas the way after I made that point on PESCO, the rapporteur of the file, who is a uh, Pole, came in to tell me that uh, my point about Ireland not being under any threat from Russia was all well and good. He could accept that point, but he was, and he was in a country that was formerly occupied by uh, Russia. Therefore, he sh- we should be expressing some solidarity with them about the uh, Russian threat. What a load of nonsense. Be like me going in saying, well, sure, we were occupied for the Brits uh, for years, so can we have a big army just in case they invade again? I mean, it's utterly ludicrous, but that was your yeah. man's logic. Like, you yeah. know, and- we have to be ready. We have to be prepared just in case. And they have conveniently completely ignored the Chinese uh, white paper on defence that came out there last year. And in it, the Chinese says, China firmly believes that hegemony and expansion are doomed to failure and security and prosperity shall be shared. China will remain committed to peaceful development and work with people of all countries to safeguard world peace and promote common development. Now, you would think... The, the way these people talk, that the Russians and the Chinese were bombing countries all over the world. They're not bombing any countries all over the world. The Americans are bombing a lot of countries. And NATO have, have engaged on it on and off. But right now, the Chinese and the Russians are bombing nobody. Mm. And it, this is just absolute nonsense. But also with the foreign policy like the Chinese have advanced, it's their influence that's now prevailing in parts of South America and so on. Economically, they're beginning to dominate. Their economy is doing much better than the United States, which has been bled of public resources into the military and um, putting their footprint in 177 countries around the world. Mm. It's a, a jo- and the and American a, people are suffering as well. And a good example of it is that uh, China, uh, only a few months ago, signed a deal with Iraq to build $20 billion dollars worth of infrastructure and in order to cut out any potential corruption because there is a lot of corruption Mm -hmm. in Iraq uh, a lot of misuse of government funds the Chinese said that there's that they will provide everybody the engineers organizers the workers and they'll employ local work uh, when they see fit Uh, but the work will be done by the Chinese they'll monitor the projects control the pricing on them and the X amount of oil will go to China. They've done the same deal with Venezuela. The Chinese built two and a half million apartments in Venezuela in the last five years. Two and a half million mm. apartments in Venezuela in the last five years. Now, so what the Chinese are doing, they're going to these countries, and, what, and the Chinese are not going there for the good of the health of the citizens. I'm not, I'm not being foolish about it. They are going there for economic reasons. They're looking for different types of minerals. They're looking for uh, various things. But instead of bombing the place and trying to take over the place and trying to run the government and trying to uh, to do what they can in, in a corrupt fashion, they're actually, uh, they're actually investing in infrastructure in these countries in order to win the hearts and minds uh, of these uh, people from all the different countries. Mm-hmm. A better approach, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. On that... Um we in the GUI NGL group are now going to be commissioning a study which will come out in December. It'll be about um, security and defense spending and military operations and their climate impact. So it'll be an analysis of the exceptionalism around this industry uh, with climate targets and its resource use and everything like this. So get in touch if you're interested in knowing more about that or if you feel you can feed into it as well. 
And also, you just reminded me there when we were talking about who's bombing who. Like this week, we heard of really sad news again in the north of Yemen, um, where there was 25 people killed by US-backed Saudi-led air raids. The second this week in a residential area in Yemen. Uh, 25 civilians killed, including children. I haven't seen it once on the mainstream news, but that's uh, a reality now with what's happening in the world. This is why this stuff is really relevant about uh, the European arms expenditure and where it's going. And Ireland was in the news this week. We know, of course, with Apple and whatever else there was with getting fines and the the courts, European courts intervening as well on anti-money laundering. So, Claire, what does that tell us? About yeah, I mean, look, it, there there are a huge number of issues which came to the spotlight this week. And actually, ironically, we had discussed around some of them uh, at the Civil Liberties Committee earlier in the week. And then, of course, the European Court of Justice ruling came out in terms of the Schrems case. Uh, maybe that isn't as well known in Ireland as, say, the Apple judgment. I mean, the Apple judgment, people know... Um, all of these issues actually stem from the fact that Ireland is essentially a tax haven for multinationals and we would sell our granny, our neutrality, anything we, our decent national pride, anything to facilitate multinationals and generally US multinationals. So all of these issues which came to the helm this week flow from that subservience. We know that subservience has been outed in the public domain with Enda Kenny and others being basically revealed to be cheerleaders for these companies and arguing for a bending of all sorts of regulation just to facilitate them. If they'd only come in and give us a few jobs, well, then basically they can do what they like. And a lot of this stuff stems from that. So the Apple judgment, um, because of Apple hiding a lot of its global profits in Ireland, um, they should have paid a lot of tax to Ireland. There was a judgment which said Ireland was owed 13 billion. And of course, the Irish government appealed it. I say, of course, that sounds mental, uh, and it is mental, particularly when today, Michal, or so when at the moment, Michal Martin is out with the begging bowl asking for more money from Europe to deal with COVID because we're only getting three billion out of the fund and we need more. This was 13 billion that the government went in and uh, appealed against uh, because they said they did nothing wrong. They weren't a tax haven. They were just um, implementing the rules correctly. Unfortunately, that appeal was overturned. So the judgment to give us the cash was then overturned and it was said that they were right, which is a bit pathetic that the Irish were actually celebrating giving back money from uh, that a multinational should have paid somewhere and hasn't been. And it's a big blow to tax transparency and we'd be involved obviously with the groups here in the Parliament to argue that that should um, certainly be um, investigated further. It's just not on. But I mean, that's the one that's in the public domain more. The one, I suppose, that is sort of linked, which shows our subservience and is actually going to have really uh, big implications is around data protection. Now, unfortunately, people mentioned data protection and the snooze button is immediately pressed. It's a kind of a nerd niche issue. We have a number of nerds working for us, so they actually love it uh, and they're very good and they've equipped us well in this. But it is actually hugely important because personal data is the new gold. And those in the private sector or others the city who can control personal data can make a fortune out of it. So the European institutions brought in the GDPR, the data protection legislation, which made it more difficult. Very good piece of legislation, really. The standards in Europe for protecting people's data are much better than they are in America. But here Ireland comes into it because 
There's a lot of American multinationals, Facebook, Twitter, WhatsApp, all the big social media names are domiciled in Ireland, which means that these are American companies operating in Europe. And Max Schrems, an Austrian activist, took a case in relation to that, basically arguing that the there wasn't sufficient protection for European citizens' data by these uh, US um uh, multinationals because US data is under surveillance by the US. They, that's what they do. That doesn't happen in Europe, but that's what it does in America. Anyway, long story went on for years. The Irish data protection commissioner is actually the commissioner for most of Europe's complaints because most of these big companies where these complaints would arise are in Ireland. And that's why I was talking about it before the judgment came out in the week that the Irish government hasn't resourced our data protection commissioner enough. But she took the case and they they won the case in essence, but it has massive implications for uh, how uh, data transactions will be done going forward. They call it the Privacy Shield, which was an arrangement that the European Union had tried to get into with the Americans has basically been struck down. So this is absolutely mega. It, mm. it's, it's, it's huge, you know. But I, 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 It shows you whose interests Ireland is representing, or the Irish government anyway, in it, Europe. It's the, 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 the wrapped around the finger of the American corporation. Terrible. And we saw that as well with, as you said, the anti-money laundering ruling, where again, Ireland was fined. Um, uh, I think two million was it? I can't remember the mm. figure. Uh, but basically, for not properly applying the anti-money laundering uh, initiative, now we made the point that there is a 4.4 trillion shadow banking sector in Ireland. It's the sixth biggest in the world. So we shouldn't be surprised that they're not implementing things properly. But there is an irony in this, in that we did have a big file here on anti-money laundering. I was a co-shadow for the. The civil liberty side of it, our, one of our, our members in the econ committee was the more dominant one, but there was a civil liberties aspect in that about the international money, anti-money laundering lists and how politicized that is because countries are on it. If they're basically, well, we were arguing that A, having an anti-money laundering list to target third countries when a huge amount of tax evasion and money laundering goes on inside the European Union is a bit of a brass mm, neck. Yeah. Uh, but then the lists themselves are very politicised in that, you know, we were making the point Iran was taken off the list when the JPOA was signed. It was, that was nothing got to do with money laundering, you know, so it's, it's a political tool uh, as well. But I mean, I think, again, it gets to the heart of transparency and stuff. But, you know, they're somewhat of boring subjects in some ways, but they're actually hugely important because we're talking about billions if not trillions of euros and they get away with this because they hide it behind sort of nerd yeah. speak and, and difficult ideas to explain it you is know? a funny week with all that's coming out now as well. on the digital but I, I think it's important in terms of big tech companies are located in Ireland and big tech is big news in the EU like they are huge everywhere but it's interesting to again say that Michal Martin's first visit to Europe uh, as uh, Taoiseach and one of the issues that's been looked at is a digital services tax that's been put out, the idea that these big co tech companies and big companies should pay a tax which will help us pay for the COVID crisis. And Ireland is one of the countries speaking up against that. Well, who again. knew? <laughs> yeah. Well, like, well, the thing it's is as well now with Pascal Donoghue as the president of the Euro group, so that's uh, the member states with the Euro and they meet together, um, like his, that's a complete political appointment as well for against this kind of 
new taxes as well, the, fa- the financial transaction tax, the digital taxes. So yeah, look, I mean, neoliberalism. And, and it, should, it should be said as well that the, uh, the decision to take Apple's side in the judgment just reinforces the point that the European Union is a neoliberal club. It's very hard to break that. It's not broken yet, and we have a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think, and well, it was an interest from one of the offshoots as well that I thought was a little bit ironic in the week that was in it, in terms of the European Court of Justice judgment, you know, striking down the privacy shield on the basis that European um, citizens' data was not being properly uh, protected by the arrangement because of US surveillance. And yet the Guardian led with the piece about unauthorized surveillance on Catalan um, activists, which was really quite shocking story, which we tried to get myself and Mick were an, uh, among a number of MEPs who wrote to the high representative about this. I was trying to get a discussion on the uh, Civil Liberties Committee about this because essentially what happened was really that spyware, which is generally only sold uh, to governments to deal with, say, criminals or, or terrorists and so on. Um, was used against a number of Catalan activists to conduct surveillance. Now, this emerged in a court case um, with WhatsApp against uh, taken against uh, an Israeli group which actually sold the technology and WhatsApp came to notify some of the people that they were under surveillance. This is basically political espionage that the, there was a vulnerability in WhatsApp which could be exploited. The spyware was put on. It means all your emails, it would act as a camera, as a phone and uh, so on. And they don't know whether there was any judicial oversight on this. But to be honest, given some of the stuff that's going on in Spain anyway, and how much the judiciary lacks independence, it's a bit mad because you've coming together here now of active surveillance against the Catalans. In the same week, there's a report published given out about the lack of, of respect for rule of law in Hungary and Poland, part of which is because of the lack of judicial independence there, which is true, and interference in the judiciary there. But there's a massive legacy of Franco's judiciary still there in Spain, which is acting in an incredibly undemocratic way as well. And I suppose all of these bring together the the double standards that we see week by week over here. Yeah, I mean, the EU from the word go has just turned a blind eye to what's happening uh, with the Catalonians. Uh, They just wanted to disappear. Uh, They love to beat the drum uh, and complain about uh, poor practices in places that uh, don't suit their agenda. Uh, but yet, in their own backyard, then they turn a complete eye. And ridiculous. they don't want to know. Like, I mean, no. we, I mean, we couldn't. I couldn't even get the coordinator for the GUI group to raise this issue fully at the at the coordinators' meetings of mm. of items to be discussed. I mean, it's really serious. Israeli hardware um, being targeted against, you know. Uh, European citizens potentially with the involvement of the well oh, probably with the involvement of the Spanish government is is really scary stuff but I'm the rapporteur for a fundamental rights report and people will not entertain the mention of Spain in that report. Now, yeah. the battle is not lost yet. They're very happy to see Poland and Hungary mentioned in the main report, but if you mention Spain or other countries like that, they shut down, they don't want to know, uh, and I think it's it's really appalling, and it really undermines their credibility in a, in a global sense. We, then. we got another example of that uh, a couple of months ago when we were talking about police brutality, 
but no one wanted to allow the French police brutality that have en- engaged with the Yellow Vest protesters. Uh, oh no, we can't be giving out about France. And it's really dangerous because uh, for starters, it kind of gives a green light to authoritarian regimes because they're going to say, like, if I was from Poland, I'd go, hang on a minute, you're doing nothing about Spain or these other countries, but yet you're picking on us. And it feeds into a kind of a right-wing narrative in those countries of saying, oh look, this European Union, it's just a kind of a, a liberal club here and they're just picking on us because they don't like our social values or our family and it's kind of whipping up so it's an incredibly dangerous yeah, uh, precedent that they're not consistent yeah when, when they give out about elections in some countries uh, if it, because they don't like, necessarily like the results but then they come along and they supported the military coup in Bolivia where Morales had won the elections fairly they supported a military coup and said it was a good day for democracy and we had the likes of the Human Rights Watch saying it was a good day for democracy I mean, in all fairness, did people that do that lose all credibility and have no right to make comment on anything as far as I'm concerned? Well, I mean, they recognise Ron Guaido, as we said many times before, who was never elected uh, by anybody in Venezuela, yet they say they support democracy. The Catalan people tried to hold a referendum and their, their leaders are in prison, including civil society leaders and members of the European Parliament. It's just, yeah. and, and, and it doesn't really get discussed anywhere, you know. And, uh, this is a, a huge challenge to Europe, uh, and to the type of Europe that is trying to be built because you can say that it's in the relatively recent past that you had a dictatorship in Spain and countries are coming from different backgrounds. And the project that Europe is trying to develop is bringing different people from different starting points, but, we have to call things out, like gently encouraging people, absolutely. But there comes a time when the gentle encouragement becomes just blatant hypocrisy and you can't have your cake and eat it. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, they tried to present, there was elections in Afghanistan last year and uh, the, the turnout was pitifully low, uh, somewhere in the region of 20%. And it took them nearly six months to announce the result of the elections. And there was just a joke. It was literally just a stitch up. But uh, the European Union wanted from day one to support the electoral process. They wanted to boast that, oh, there's democracy in Afghanistan because the Americans brought there. Uh, they've been uh, involved in a war there for 19 years and the country's worse now than it was when they went there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, protecting and defending those elections and then criticising them in yeah. other places, it's a joke. And then when you consider they gave 200, the World Bank gave 200 million to Afghanistan this week, such as the scale of the economic disaster and health disaster that's there. But that money has gone precisely to that elected, huh, okay, government there. The corruption around where that money is going uh, is this. Mm. Uh, even mem- a lot of members actually of the Afghani parliament have been raising it, like in terms of through the appointments. It's It's really scary. Yeah. But on this thing of Spain, in particular in the EU, it's as you make this point of how it really gives the Eastern Europeans like a, a really good reason to say this is a load of like what are they doing here in Brussels, like pointing the finger at us, and where what's happening in Spain? They're not even allowed to mention the word Spain in these debates. Is that does that come down to just the fact that there's a central government that's very strong on this issue of of not talking about it, and it's Catalonia is a regional issue, I or think, why well, is it such a, a, a non a taboo? 
I, well, I, I did a webinar during the week and there was mm. two really excellent speakers were on it with me. Oh, and there was a powerful professor from Geneva, but she was making the point, I suppose. I suppose I made the point that when we're here, when it gets raised, all the Spaniards start screaming at each other and kind of everybody else goes, oh, that's a national issue, nothing got to do with us. Yeah. Whereas actually the way we have been looking at it is it's one of defending democratic rights. Now, this professor made the point that probably people find it hard to understand because they go to Spain on their holidays, they go to Barcelona on their holidays, they don't see repression in Barcelona per se, they don't see, even though there has been absolutely horrific police brutality and, you know, um, cutting down on freedom of assembly and so on. But she was making the point in the absence of a violent sort of struggle and that there's an irony in this, that here we have a liberal democracy that can't deal with democratic rights within its sort of borders in a, in a gentlemanly, humane way it's nearly like it would force you into violence kind of thing to get a bit of attention. And she used the example of uh, divorce and women's rights years ago when somebody, uh, a woman in Spain, which was very, you know, conservative country, would ask for a divorce and they'd say, why? What's what's wrong with your husband? Like, you know, mm. and they'd say, well, there's nothing wrong with my husband. I just want to be free. She'd say, like, it's the same. We can say, well, why do you need to be separate? Well, we just want to be free. And that colonialism is a mindset as much as uh, uh, an invasive force like and the the domination of that area culturally uh, is what's at stake here. And you need a, a dialogue around that. And she made very interesting points around Quebec and areas like that as well, where there yeah. isn't a violent opposition. Yeah. And you, and you, you made the point that... Uh, if, you, if you're looking for a divorce and you said, well, I want a divorce because uh, my husband is battering me. Oh, yeah, that's OK. Right. Yeah, yeah, we understand that then. But if unless there's violence involved, uh, they, they, they struggle they don't to, see the to, to actually see uh, that, you know, and I think that's that's partly why. And I think probably there is a feeling that because of Spain's fascist past, they've come a long way. And you do see some moves, you know, by, say, the, the government that's in Spain at the moment. There were some move to talk to the Catalans and that kind of thing. But there's very much. And when we went to visit the prisoners and spoke to them and learned a bit more, there's a real deep state there, uh, particularly in the judiciary and the police force from Franco's time, though that hasn't changed. And they sort of called the shots as well. And some of the politicians are probably a bit afraid in terms of challenging that like as well. Yeah. Uh, and it's stinted by the groups here, like the socialist and S&D group here. They're the second biggest group, but they're completely dominated by the Spaniards. So, you know, that has a big influence when you have a national country dominating a group. And they're all following. Have, yeah. They follow that line and the others toe the line then yeah. as well on that. But also in environmental matters, there's been some developments with CAP that you wanted to talk about, Mick. Yeah, look, just shortly, we haven't much time left. CAP is a huge issue at home. It's a common agricultural policy. It's set every seven years. And uh, I'm, I'm the shadow on it for environment for the GUI group. And we were in negotiations. Um, I spoke about it before. Uh, there was negotiations going on between the seven shadows from the seven different groups in the parliament. Um, so that you had the seven shadows from Envy. And there were seven shadows from agri agriculture, and the fourteen of us were going into a room and we were negotiating our positions uh, in order to come up with a finalised cap. Negotiations have broke down, and the meetings have actually stopped. I'm not so sure what's going to happen, um, but there's huge problems, 
and there's an awful fear that, and you must remember, right, the, this cap, it's really from, it was supposed to be from the period 2020 to 2027. The, it, the, the substance of it was completed in 2018, right? That's two years before Farm to Fork or the biodiversity strategy were even uh, brought to the table. So it's actually a bit outdated already. And the cap is supposed to take on board Farm to Fork and the biodiversity strategy. Uh, there has these the cap is supposed to be compliant now with these right for 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 the next seven years, but in actual fact, we're actually dealing with something that's two years old. We're dealing with a very conservative parliament. We're dealing with a very conservative agricultural sector who want to hold what they have. Now listen, we're not fighting. I mean, I'm, I'm fighting the environmental corner, but I'm not fighting against farmers, right? I tell you what I'm fighting against. I'm fighting against industrial farming. I'm fighting against mm. uh, the big buyers that have dominated the scene for too long, with the help, I have to say, at home of the IFA and the Department of Agriculture. I would say, I, I have said it many times, but the Department of Agriculture at home and the IFA have really only supported, realistically, 20% of Irish farmers, max. 80% of them are not represented by them. We've lost 140,000 family farms since 1970. It, it didn't happen uh, just like that. It is the result of Irish government policy, EU policy. And we're trying to stop that. We're trying to protect family farms. We're trying to protect the smaller farmer. We're trying to uh, help farmers to move towards producing cleaner food. Now, Move away from trying to move away from chemical fertilizer, trying to move away from uh, poisonous uh, pesticides, but now we have a huge challenge, and just where this cap is going now is really up in the air, um, and I'm not so sure where it's going to uh, end up at, at this moment, right? But I, I was concerned only yesterday morning. I had the German Minister for Agriculture in, and I put a tour. As we have, we've seen a leaked report from council, which shows that they are eroding already the, many of the environmental aspects of uh, of CAP. They're fighting against it already, and the report shows this. And I picked out three or four samples for her of what was happening. I mean, just look at. I know we haven't much time, but. Uh, for example, the Commission proposes effective protection for carbon-rich peatlands and wetlands in Annex 3 uh, of the document. Um, but the Council wants to dilute this protection by changing the wording to minimum protection. Now, another point, scientists have already told us that we need to protect habitats on farms with a minimum of 10% of farmland set aside for non-productive areas. Now, the council wants not only to set no minimum percentage, it also wants to allow the cultivation of catch crops in these non-productive areas. So I, I, I put it to the minister that, I mean, this is, not, this is really not good enough. And what's her position? Now, and I mean, before people start, uh, bash, before people start uh, saying that I'm being unfair to the farmers, I actually asked her as well, will she insist on an annual 15 billion euros for farmers for biodiversity measures, we've got to we've got to fund this. We're not going to move the farmers away from using damaging 
chemical fertilizers and poisonous pesticides unless we help them financially to do so because they can't afford to do it unless we help them. So instead of giving money out according to the amount of acres you have that was set years ago and giving it all, most of the money to the big farmers, right? Uh, there's, there's 20% of the farmers at home getting 80% of the European money. It should be that way around, right? I mean, we're just not looking after the farmers who need to get help. And the majority of farmers in Ireland are not being well taken care of by the European Union. That's the truth. And unfortunately, we have the likes of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and in Europe through uh, EPP and Renew, they are still fighting for the big farmer at the expense of the majority of farmers in Ireland. It's a disgrace. And the majority of people in Europe. Because it's in everybody's interest for us to reframe the way in which the cap is done and to be putting like billions. It's a huge area of Mm. money, of citizens' money goes into the farming community. But it should be given to farmers for their role in protecting the planet, in protecting biodiversity, in doing things differently, in supporting organic farming and so on, rather than into beef and dairy as it it is now. It's crazy. It really relates as well to this climate and environment emergency resolution I was talking about earlier. This was a text saying that we have an emergency, we need everything to be done quickly and consistent. Um, Agriculture is probably the most inconsistent policy area with a climate and environment emergency response. And we're talking here about a seven-year programme of a huge tranche of the EU budget the biggest basically for the in one policy area yeah, they're going to get nearly 30% of the money 30% mm-hmm. of the money of a what 100 billion budget um, whatever um, but the the fact that this is going we're giving public money into unsustainable practices mm-hmm. and we're going to have this big vote happening now in October in the plenary on the cap and we'll be very much watching how everyone else votes on this and be putting in our own amendments. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but beware. The, the, the budget is actually over 300 billion. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. we're talking a lot of money, right? And it should be done right. Yeah. And, and I have to say that the German agricultural minister was far from impressive with her answers. Yeah. And I heard someone put it to her just for that, uh, that German uh, chemical manufacturers, Bayer, uh, it was put to, put to her that uh, why are they still allowed to make chemicals pesticides that are illegal in the European Union already and, and not, not obviously not near enough of it is illegal but they're, they're stuff that was so bad that they've been made illegal in Europe and they're selling it they're still making it and selling it to India and Brazil just for two examples and she just jumped around the question and she told us how good she, she, she didn't really answer the question and went on to tell us how wonderful Bayer were uh, I'd be very worried about her position on agriculture and as to what we're going to get from uh, the German presidency it's a mad mix, isn't it? I mean, you see the influence of the big lobbies everywhere. But then on the other side, there's some excellent work being done here. Like the European Court of Auditors did a brilliant report into the cap payment showing how it wasn't doing its job to support biodiversity. So it was actually contradicting their own state and policies. And it just sits there gathering dust. No one even pays any attention to it. Unreal. Yeah. And like, it's just, yeah, it's just really political, though, how all this happens. Like we had also a vote last week on um, an objection to titanium dioxide about classifying it as um, a category two carcinogen. And it didn't pass. It had exactly the same amount of votes in favor and votes against in the plenary, which meant that it fell. And this is all political games because in the end, it's about lobbying. There was so much scaremongering going around from Spanish lobbies and whoever, Czech lobbies, saying that this is going to impact workers in the aviation sector and the production sector. 
it's about their health in the end of the day, not about their, it's not going to affect their jobs. So it's really sad how this works in the parliament and it really becomes p- political and we're not actually having proper scientific assessment of this and real uh, drawing the line when we have harmful chemicals in our environment. So. Yeah, look, I mean, a huge, a huge job for us uh, in the European Parliament is to actually fight against the power of the lobbyists. Mm. The lobbyists are in here morning, noon and night fighting for big industry. Mm. And sadly, uh, I know we, we covered uh, the German presidency in our last episode, but uh, we've actually been really struck by the fact that the German ministers seem to be all uh, caught in the web of, of corporate uh, lobbyists. Yeah. That's all we have time for today. This is our last episode, episode 20. Um, before we leave, we're going to, of course, have our book recommendation from Mr. Wallace. So what's your book? Um, it's a, an amazing book that I'd never heard of. And when COVID started... Um, and especially uh, when coronavirus uh, was having such an, a terrible impact in Lombardia in Italy, the Italians all started talking about the, a famous book called The Betrothed. And it was written in 1827 by Alessandro Manzoni, M-A-N-Z-O-N-I. An amazing book. Uh, I ordered it and got it and read it. And it, it's actually set in the 1600s. And it was actually set in the time of a plague. And that's why the book became uh, of such interest again, hmm. because the whole Lombardia region, I mean, it, listen, uh, it's just, it was just soul-destroying what, what happened in Lombardia. But this book, uh, I, I would certainly... It's written in uh, a sort of a classical English style. Uh, obviously, it was written in Italian first, but it was translated years ago in a sort of a classical indie style because it was it was classic Italian style that was written in at the time and uh, but it's not hard to read if people think that uh, you know if they start thinking about Shakespeare and some people uh, find Shakespeare difficult some don't um, but it's it's a, it's an easy writing style a beautiful writing style and a great story uh, it's I couldn't let the book down amazing book sounds lovely <laughs> Uh, that's a good summer read recommendation then I think <laughs> so that's us um, for the summer so we'll catch up with you again when we're back to work in September August anyway we'll be back in September so get in touch with us on at I foresee trouble um, we'll I'd be happy to explore any kind of topics you throw at us and um, we'll pick it up then so until then have a nice break and ciao <laughs>